Chapter 18 of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Prade. Chapter 18 Music in the Veranda. Barrington gave Miss Longleat his hand and guided her over the stepping stones. Lord Dolph and his wife divided their botanical treasures and they walked down the ravine to where Cathcart and the black boy were holding the horses. "'Have you heard much about the elections?' asked Honoria of the superintendent as they stood waiting for Mr. Ferris to reappear. "'No. I believe the ministry will have a majority, but I don't take much interest in politics.' "'Why, when you know that I dislike a lukewarm supporter almost as much as I detest a radical?' "'I thought your father called himself a radical.' only in his hatred of the hereditary privileges of rank. An English radical is an Australian conservative. I don't dislike the extreme brood. They generally have ideas. Now, Sammy Deans is a fair specimen. At any rate, he is amusing, and if he does steal a calf now and then, I know several squatters who are given to nuggeting. He is mischievous because he has just enough of education to convince him that all men should be equal and that Australia ought to be a regenerated Great Britain, the paradise of fools and working men. But he is a less objectionable member of society than the illiterate shearer who occasionally touches his cap to his overseer and knocks down his check in a spree. Come, there is the old man. Perhaps you will reward my silent heroism by allowing me to ride part of the way home with you. Mrs. Ferris has been improving the occasion by impressing upon me how happy she is. I don't object to people feeling happy, but I do complain loudly of having the fact dinned into my ears. It irritates me when I am feeling particularly out of sorts myself. Near the crossing they met Tom Dungy, who, with his mailbag strapped before him, was riding leisurely along the bridle track. He regarded Barrington with an air of amusement. Well, I thought I'd find you air, he squeaked. Gents ain't much different to native dogs. They always run on a trail. I have brought your bag, my lady. The house at Dairaaba was as empty as a sucked egg, and that there female at the huts didn't so much as offer me a cup of tea. I have got a note from Barramunda Station, Miss Longleat. Twere Mr. Maddox himself as govet me. Honoria colored as she took it from his hand. Since you have been done out of your tea at Dairaaba, Dungy, you may have a glass of rum at the house. "'Well, I don't know that I shouldn't relish a nobbler,' squeaked Dungy, winking slyly at Barrington. "'Not but what is a poor soil that is always needing to be watered, and too much grog ain't good for the palate, let alone for the stomjack.' "'You do not read your note,' said Barrington, as they passed through the slip-rails. "'I will wait till I reach home,' said Honoria, not unpleased to make the use of the opportunity of teasing." at the same time dreading to show any sign of the mortification which a refusal upon Dyson's part would certainly entail upon her. She had dispatched her invitation during one of those moments of repulsion from Barrington, when her longings had turned in a rushing tide towards the suitor she had rejected. Ever since the sending of the letter she had been anxious as to its reception. When she had gained her room, she eagerly tore open Maddox's note. It was a brief acceptance, and intimated that the writer would arrive at Kuralbin early upon the following morning. In truth, a chance remark uttered by Lord Dolph Bassett, and certain rumours of a flirtation between Honoria and the Englishman, 
which were current upon the Koorong, had affected Dyson deeply, and had actuated his reply. From what he had heard, he imagined that Barrington might be a man calculated to captivate the girl's fancy. The tones of her note appealed to him. Half dreading, half hoping for the confirmation of his suspicions, he resolved to ride over the Kooralbin and judge for himself. Through a gap in her window curtain, Honoria caught sight of Barrington as he leaned against the fence talking lightly to Janie. Was it the glimpse of his soldier-like figure and high-bred features, or the perusal of Maddox's curt letter which shed a glow over her face and caused her heart to throb with excitement? She leaned back in her chair with her arms twined above her head, while her bosom heaved gently, her lips became moist and trembling, and her eyes melted into womanly tenderness as though at some passionate thought. Then she darted from her seat, plunged her face into a basin of cold water, and hastily proceeded to dress for dinner. Towards the end of the meal the conversation turned upon the fate of an overseer in the neighborhood, who had died in a fit of delirium tremens due to disappointment in a love affair with his master's daughter. Lady Dolph animadverted severely upon the conduct of the girl in question. "'Is a woman heartless?' asked Barrington with his eyes fixed upon Honoria's face because she refuses to gratify the passion of one man at the expense of the happiness of another? "'I object to the theory that women are to blame for the folly of men,' exclaimed Cornelius Cathcart. "'Why should the weaker sex be raised to such an important position in the scale of creation? One would really imagine, to hear sentimentalists talk, that the male mission in life is to gratify the vanity and caprice of women. Society would be a little less boring if there were no question of love.' "'I think that we women always get the worst of it,' said Honoria, rising abruptly from the table. "'Come, let us eat our dessert on the veranda.' Her suggestion was adopted. Only Barrington and Angela lingered in the dining-room. Honoria wandered to some little distance from the party, and Cathcart, following her, seated himself at her feet. "'Why do you speak so bitterly of women?' she asked. "'I detest shams. It is degrading to hear a man quoted as the superior animal.' and yet to know that he is at the mercy of inconsistent selection. Do you think, said Honoria, looking at him with troubled eyes, that a woman is wrong to experimentalize till she finds the best that life can give her? Why cry out so against vivisection? The cruelty which serves science is surely less blamable than that which morally mutilates for the benefit of the individual. Tell me, he added abruptly, what has come over you since I was lost at Kuralbin? You have altered. You seem to have lost self-confidence. Did you see Maddox on his way down to Leckhart's town? Yes, for a short time. I knew his mission. Will you tell me its result? There is nothing to tell. Nor ever will be, in that quarter? No. So he is the victim of an experiment. If I had not studied you closely, I should have expected to find you today wearing the simper appropriate to congratulations. I see further experiments are in progress. Some chemicals are dangerous to handle, and there are passions that don't bear tampering with. Take my advice and be careful. Well, he added in an altered tone, I am glad at any rate that you have spared me the painful necessity of leaving Barramunda. There would not be room on the station for the superintendent and the master's wife. I say, Miss Longleat, cried Lord Dolph, won't you play us something? "'Yes, do,' said Cathcart. "'It is one of the signs of the advance of civilization "'that men are no longer compelled to turn over leaves. "'I have got no more conversation.' 
Sing and let me be quiet. May I move this chair into the garden? Thanks. Now I can enjoy two of the most delightful things in the world. Music and tobacco. He subsided in a heap into one of the canvas chairs, lit his pipe and spoke no more. Honoria entered the drawing-room and sat down to the piano. Barrington, to whom music was exquisite bliss or keen pain, trembled as she approached the instrument. He feared a disenchantment. Strangely enough, during his stay at Kuralbin, it had never occurred to him to ask her to play, and she had never done so voluntarily. About her music, as about other things, she was capricious. When the opening prelude told him that, in this respect at least, their natures were in unison, his joy found vent in a long sigh. He was accustomed to say that melody is one of the strongest determinants of the passions. From his childhood its influence over him had been remarkable. The first time that he had heard an opera, he had retreated to the back of the box and wept silently. There was something almost womanish in his intense susceptibility. Honoria played airs from Lohengrin. The lamp had not yet been brought in, and the room was in half-darkness. Outside, a red moon was slowly rising behind the Kurong crag, and was reflected in the dim expanse of the lagoon. The sombre disk of forest and plain seemed infinite. The gentlemen were smoking on the veranda, and Angela, pale and shadowy, was pacing the gravel walk with Mr. Ferris, who was pointing out an effect of moonlight upon the rocks. Barrington sat in a vine-screened corner whence he could watch the player. Honoria appeared lost in her music. Now she passed on to some quaint devotional airs by Bach. Passion succeeded reverie. A great yearning predominated over both. There the true artistic life found expression. The subtle perfume of emotion was breathed, and, as it were, enchained. The two minds, dissonant and mutually incomprehensive, were brought for the moment into complete harmony. Yes, yes, the music seemed to say. I understand your needs, your inconsistencies, your fleeting impressionability, the mingling of the sensuous with the spiritual in the natures of both of you. I comprehend, and I satisfy. Ah, said Mrs. Ferris in a plaintive tone to Lord Dolph, I wish you would play something of Verdi's. I like music that sends a cold current down my spine, that makes my legs tingle and my nerves quiver. Italian melodies are like the flowers of an English summer. They have the breath of roses and the perfume of mignonette. But your grand classical harmonies are no better than these gorgeous tropical blossoms that only make me long the more for something homely and sweet, like lavender and cherry pie. Lady Dolph giggled, as she always did when anything was said that she did not quite understand. The spell was broken. Honoria ceased playing. Lady Dolph's voice had been the jarring note which mars all earthly harmony. She sank into a chair a little distance from Barrington. I think that the lives of some of us are a long quest after aesthetic perfection, which is most nearly realized in music, he said in an undertone drawing closer to her. I do not thank you. I only say that you have not disappointed me. Barrington, said Lord Dolph, you are first-rate without an accompaniment. Sing us something. It is so jolly sitting here. I never sit in a veranda in summer, said Lady Dolph, without thinking of snakes, especially when anyone is playing. They are so fond of music. They creep along the boards and get under one's gown, 
and perhaps wind themselves round one's ankles. Do you remember, Dolph? Etc., etc. Dear heart, cried Mrs. Ferris, feeling her stout legs in alarm. I never thought of that. Angela, my child, it is too late for you to be sitting out in the dew. Let us both go indoors. I will sing to you, whispered Barrington to Honoria. Silence fell upon the group as soon as his voice was raised in that exquisitely passionate serenade to which Shelley's words are set. I arise from dreams of thee, in the first sweet sleep of night, when the winds are breathing low and the stars are shining bright, I arise from dreams of thee, and a spirit in my feet has led me, who knows how, to thy chamber window, sweet. Honoria leaned back in her chair, half shading her face with her hands. The light was too dim for either to see quite plainly the features of the other, but she knew that each thrilling note was addressed to her, and her frame quivered in response to the passionate appeal. End of chapter 18 Read by Celine Major.